fast I am, but an ox with a carriage on the back? Come on, seriously? I'll run that, right? Uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. Those are some of our friends, those of you who are joining us maybe for the first time today, some of our friends that are part of this uh, church body that have gone for a short period of time over to Madagascar, Africa, to share the love of Christ, try and connect people to Jesus for life change, partway around the world. And they're there with some missionaries that we actually sent out from our church, from the original core group of our church a few years ago. Um, Grant and Jody Waller, and they're there planting churches out in the bush, and they're also in the city doing the ministry like you heard from the, at the university, and they've seen literally hundreds of people come to Christ there. And I remember when we were there a year ago, I don't think they had seen anybody come to Christ, and then God just started doing a, an amazing work there as Grant started to share the gospel with some of the, the tribal leaders and whatnot there. And, uh, so amazing that life change happening all over the place, and we'll pray for them in just a moment. But for those of you who are here as a guest, um, I want to welcome you. And uh, just tell you that we appreciate you coming to a movie theater to worship with us. And whether you're here in Theater 9 or across the hall in Theater 14, we're grateful that you've decided to come. And we don't hide why it is that we exist. Our desire is for your life uh, to be connected to Jesus for life change until the first service. Some people come with different needs. And some of you have come in here, heavy stuff. We've got burdens on your heart. Difficult things have happened this week. And uh, we represent Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Some of you, that's what you might need today. And uh, some of you may come with uh, big questions, skeptical questions, and uh, we may not have all the answers, but we know the answer, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do is connect you to him, ultimately, so that your life can be changed like we would claim that many of our lives have been changed. And I'll tell you that my life has been transformed and still in process of being changed. And so we want that for you. And ultimately, we believe that's what glorifies God and uh, brings him the praise that he so deserves. And so we're grateful that you're here. One thing we ask you to do if you're a guest uh, the first time, second time, if you didn't fill it out your first time, is just fill out a little connection cards in your worship program. Let us know how you heard about us. I would love to know whether it was a, somebody invited you, somebody did something nice for you, and you were like, where did that person go to church, or whatever happened, um, got a mailer, whatever it is, and take it out to the first-time guest kiosk. If you take that card out the first-time guest kiosk, we make a donation on behalf of that card uh, towards another ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. And if you have questions about that, um, just ask the person who's standing out at the first-time guest kiosk, and they'll explain some of that to you today. And uh, just give you a little update on a few things that are happening, too. Those of you who are a regular part of Southbridge, you were here last week, probably, and you heard me invite a bunch of folks to what was called Group Link. Fifty-some people showed up at Group Link, started over six different groups. And let me tell you why that's exciting for us. It's potential for life change. It's getting people in an environment where they're going to talk about what we talk about on Sunday morning and then hold each other accountable to live that stuff out. You've heard me say before, groups are the primary place where we do care. It's the primary place where we keep each other accountable. It's the primary place where we do Bible study. And so if you're looking for a place to get connected, groups, get in a group. That's the way to go. And we had six new groups launch um, just this past week, plus a, a couple that weren't part of Group Link. And uh, so we're excited about that. And uh, we'll just praying for folks to, to be connected to Jesus. It goes beyond just what we talk about here on Sunday morning, but living this stuff out in a workplace, coffee shop, schools, wherever it is that we go. And so we're excited for that. And if you're in Theater 14, you may realize this morning um, that I'm over here again this week, and I, I wasn't over there last week, and that we don't have as many, enough worship people, just being candid with you. Uh, we're transparent as a church. We tell you our victories. We'll tell you some of the things we're struggling with, too. Uh, we need some more instrumentalists. And so in order to send the image of the instrumentalist over there, the live teacher stays over here, too. And uh, so... We're going to be changing that venue up a little bit in the days ahead, and I'll announce some more of that um, next week and, and just some of the things that are happening. But uh, thank you for being over there. If you want to come over, I don't know, there's a couple seats up here in the front. You're welcome to come join us over here. Um, but in the, in the weeks ahead, we'll be live over here with the live worship team as Jad's working on a vision for what we're going to do over there at the Theater 14 in the days ahead. And then also, if you run a soundboard, like lights, <laughs> uh, any of that kind of stuff, we'd love to have you. And so just uh, let Jad know. He's the guy that's playing guitar up here this morning. You can email our church office at Southbridge at Southbridge Fellowship. Com. And if you're new with us, um, one of the things that uh, we've been doing here at this church is a new series entitled Four. 
I've been talking about how followers of Jesus Christ have built a reputation in America. And surveys have actually shown this to be true. It's not just a pastor spotting stuff off. But Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons in their book, Unchristian, actually document a bunch of statistics that show what people outside the church, Buddhist, Islamist, atheist, agnostics, all those people think about Christians. And they think things like, we're angry, warmongers, we're violent, we can't get along with people outside the church, we're hypocrites, we're judgmental, we're anti-gay, we're violent, we're against a lot of stuff. And the question becomes, is that what we're supposed to be famous for? Are we supposed to be famous for what we're against? Are we supposed to be known for what God is for? And that's what we've been talking about in this series, and we're going to continue that this morning. I'm going to pray for us before we open up God's word. Will you just pray with me? Father, we come before you, and uh, we ask you to work. We ask you to do what only you do. Change our hearts. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. Give me the words for this message. Uh, you know we'll hear these words. God, will you speak by the power of your spirit into their hearts, into their lives, into their exact circumstances? God, will you convict where conviction is necessary? Will you comfort where that's necessary? And God, will you please, in your name, spread the glory and fame of who you are amongst those that will hear these words and then have their lives changed so that they would live in such a way that the people that come into contact with us would see our good deeds, would glorify you, and that your name would be glorified, your glory would be spread, your renown would be on our lips and our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, have you noticed as you look at our culture that we are a culture that's hungry for fame? Some of you maybe spent some time yesterday, Saturdays, you know, sitting back watching some college football. I don't know, did you hear any post-game speeches or anybody do talk about anything after a victory or a defeat or some great play they had? Usually they interview guys who either did something really bad or really good, and you hear them talk about things. Did you hear any of their speeches? Or have you heard any sports speeches throughout history? You watch ESPN or sometimes the classic channel, they'll show you this stuff, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, I'm the greatest of all time. Why do they say that? Because it's their fame. Or you hear speeches of inductions and people talk about the image that they've created. And it's an image that might not even be the real them, but it's how they've gotten their fame. It's how they've received their fame. And what is fame? It's the adoration. It's people think highly of you. You're the best at something. And we'll go to great lengths to be that, won't we? You just opened the Guinness Book of World Records. Have you seen some of the records that are in there? I read this week, there's a guy that's in there for cracking the most eggs on his head in a minute. Congratulations. <laughs> He's famous. His name's in that book, and there was another guy that was on there, and he actually has the record for squirting milk from his eyelid the furthest distance. Nine feet, two inches, if anyone was wanting to try this. I'm not even sure how you squirt milk from your eye, but I ask you this question. How many of you, when you were kids, thought to yourself, when I grow up, I want to be the best milk eye squirter in all of history? <laughs> no one thinks that, do they? So why does someone want to do that? Because they want fame. And you turn the channel from the sports channel to the news channel, and you see people wanting fame. Or you turn it to any reality television show. Why would people go on reality television? Why would you let people watch your life? Or why would you compete so that you could win your own show? Is it because you have something that's so good you have to share it with people, or is it because you want fame? Or you watch the talent shows, and you see whether it's America's Got Talent, American Idol, The Voice, The Sing-Off, the you know, So You Think You Can Dance, whatever they are. The X Factor, I guess, is the new one. Whatever they are. You see people go on this talent show to see who's the most talented. If you've ever watched these shows, which I confess I have seen them before, if you've ever watched these shows, you know that there are people that go on the show, and they know that you know that I know that they know they don't have any talent. And they will do something, whether it's an impersonation, whether it's dress up in a crazy costume, whatever it is, so they can capture the camera for a few seconds and get on television. And maybe they can become known. Maybe they can become famous. Why? Why does anyone want to become famous? 
Psychologists may tell you that the reason why we want to become famous is because if enough people like us, then maybe we'll like us. Or if enough people think we're good enough, then maybe we are good enough. We need that validation. Maybe that's why some people seek fame, but I think there's a deeper reason. It's because we were created for fame. In fact, you read in Genesis, when God created the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when he created us, male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. We're bearers of glory. We bear the image of the glorious one. And we're supposed to spread the fame of the glorious one, the fame of his name. But here's the problem. We want that fame for us. We try to steal that glory for us, the same as we try to put false gods on the throne, the same as we try to do other things than what we are designed to do. We try to fulfill this longing, this desire that we are created for fame by having the fame for ourselves, when in actuality we were created for the fame of his name. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, we're back in Exodus. It's the second book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. So Genesis, Exodus, and towards the middle of the book there, Exodus chapter 20 is where we'll be I'm really focusing on one verse today, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, but I'm going to review the first six just to bring you up to speed of what we talked about over the first couple weeks. And remember, we're talking about the Ten Commandments here, which is interesting for some people because we're talking about what we're for. And many people think of the Ten Commandments as like kind of slap your wrist, don't do that, you know, stop that, it's what you're against. But ultimately what you're seeing is the character of God and what God's telling his people who are already in relationship with him, how to live their lives, what they're for. And one of the things we're for is for the fame of his name. Remember the Ten Commandments, they're not rules that are just dropped in isolation out of the sky to tell people how to have a relationship with God. These are people that are given these rules in a context, and the context is they already have a relationship with God. These are people that have already been redeemed, already been rescued. He's already their provider. He's already their guider. He is their father. And he just rescued these people out of 400 years of bondage. They've been living in freedom for three months. And now it's like a husband and wife at the altar. They already have a relationship. There's already a history there. They don't just show up at the altar, and now they're making their vows. There's this covenant, this promissory relationship language is taking place here. And what he's saying in this is, is here's how I want you to promise to live with me. This is how the relationship will be best. And remember, it's a very intense scene. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, if you have a Bible with you, you can look back up in there, and you see in verse 16 through 18, you see the scene that takes place. There's thunder, and there's lightning, and then, you know, the loud trumpet blast that takes place, and they're about to hear two million people, not just Moses, two million people, 600,000 men plus women and children are about to hear the voice of God. The mountain shakes violently, and God speaks. Look at what God says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We already have a relationship, and I am a God of freedom. And we saw the first week that he's for freedom. You shall have no other gods before me, because that's the best way. That's the most freeing way, because these other gods, they will lead you to bondage. But I'm for freedom, so have no other gods before me. And then verse 4, and I'm for the real thing. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, a phony, any fake, any imitation of me, any false god on the throne of your life in the form of anything. And that's exhaustive. Anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them, or serve them, or the NIV says, worship them. And here's why, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. I'm pursuing you with a burning passion. And there's consequences for sin, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's ripple effects of sin. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, and there's ripple effects for obedience. And then our verse for today 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And so the first week we saw that God is for freedom, and then last week we see that he's for the real thing, for authenticity, for being, because he's exclusive. He's one of a kind. There's no one else like him for the real thing. And then this week we see him talk about his name. Why? It's because he's for the fame of his name. And that's our first point. God is for the fame of his name. And if you think about names, names mean something, don't they? Like if you're thinking about having children and maybe you're not even married yet, but you just think about one day, what if I have a kid, I'm going to name them, and you come up with some names, maybe you write it down in your notebook or your iPad or however kids do that now or whatever happens, or, or as you're getting married, you're like, if one day we're going to have a boy, we're going to have a girl, we're going to name them this, the boy picket fence, that whole deal. You think of names, or maybe you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant or whatever it is, and you think of kids' names. So what many parents do is they'll go to websites and they'll look up names that they like, and then what it'll show is the meaning of the name. And then sometimes the meaning of the name will be like, yeah, I'm picking that. Or sometimes you go, no way. Like, you don't pick a name. It's like, you know, Steve is bright light. Or what, I don't know what Steve means. But you're like, yeah, that's a good name. And you just pick it. Or you pick another one like Destined for Greatness. Yeah, that's a great name. You don't go pick names when it says stuff like dark cloud over your head. Like, no one picks that, right? Or, you know, eternally disobedient. <laughs> you may think, but anyway, they don't, they, you don't want that name for them. The name means something. And we've looked up kids' names, and we were naming our kids before, but I, I haven't really spent much time thinking about my own name. This week, I looked up my name. The meaning of my last name, Lear, I saw on one website, I think it was like namemeaning.com or something like that, it said, lives in marshy area. <laughs> North Raleigh, I don't know. Anyway, thought about that. And, and my name's Scott. It wasn't on every website. It, a lot of them just said Scottish origin. and <laughs> Brilliant. Like, that's hard to figure out. But uh, Scott means wanderer. <laughs> so I wander around marshy areas. Doesn't sound like the smartest person. It sounds kind of meaningless as a name. So my name doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to it. But there are other people's names that do have a lot of meaning. And maybe it's because of something that's written on a website, or maybe it's because of their reputation or the way they live their lives. And, and that's why we name drop, isn't it? You name drop to add credibility. Sometimes I'll share a quote with you, and I'll tell you who says it, because it adds more credibility for who that person is. Or, or maybe you're hanging out with somebody. You say, yeah, I'm playing three on three the other day, a couple of my buddies, Michael, Jordan, and uh, we were just talking, and... It means something. If you drop the name, it has something attached to it. There's some weight to it. Like if I go to an event and I walk up, it's like a government event or White House thing or something. If I walk up and I say, hey, I'm Scott, they're going to be like, why don't you go wander out in the parking lot? Like it's not getting me in. But if I say, you know, I know Senator or President or whoever it is, and I say their name and they want me in, I get in because there's weight with that name. And there's weight with brand names, whether it's a vehicle that you're buying, whether it's a pair of jeans that you're buying, whatever, you buy a cup of coffee, the name means something. And it might mean there's excellence with it, that, that might have a reputation behind it, it might be some kind of quality, it might be some kind of trend, it might be something, but the name means something. That's why we'll pay extra money for a name brand. See, names mean something. And here God's talking about his name. And think about that for a second. God having a name Here's an infinite being who's self-sufficient, and we're going to describe him with letters on a page. You see what his name is? It's his identity. It's trying to describe what's wrapped up in his essence and his character. And that's why when you read through the scriptures, you see multiple names for God. You saw some of them on the screen this morning when we were worshiping. He's a redeemer. He's a rescuer. He's the prince of peace. He's a loving father. He's the mighty God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the Holy Spirit. He's Jesus. He's a redeemer and a rescuer. He's an author. He's a perfecter of our faith. He's a, his name is a strong tower. It's a refuge that we run into. He's the creator. He's the maker. He's a teacher. He's a master. The names just keep going. 
He's Jehovah. He's Yahweh. He's all these things. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And the title that's used here is Lord. All describing Lord. He is Master and Redeemer, Rescuer. All those things wrapped into a, a name. That name carries weight. Because it not only describes his names, it describes his attributes. His foreknowledge, his wisdom, his truth, his mercy, his grace, his wrath, his anger, his jealousy, his justice. All of that. His omniscience and omnipresence all wrapped up into a name. And so that name means something. It's heavy. It carries weight. And then he says in this passage, the third commandment here, you shall not misuse my name. New American Standard, King James, say it like this. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Now, that's actually a pretty good translation. Because in Hebrew, what it means to, to use God's name meaninglessly or use God's name, misuse God's name, as NIV says, or, or to use it in vain, it means this, to lift it up to emptiness, to attach it to meaninglessness. That's what it means to violate this commandment. Now, some people think to violate this commandment just means you use it as a swear word or you mock it or you, what, you can fill in the blank with multiple things. You False prophecy, lying, there's all kinds of stuff I read this week that people attach it to. It can mean lots of different things. But think about this for a minute. If it literally means to attach it to meaninglessness, how many people wear the name of Jesus? And this basically describes their life. Get up in the morning, read the newspaper. Go to work, get a paycheck. Get up the next morning, read the newspaper. Go to work get a paycheck, have some kids, teach them to be nice and moral and have good manners, maybe even go to church so that they can get a job, go to school, get a paycheck. So they can get up in the morning, drink their coffee, go to work, get a paycheck. Sounds kind of empty. It's what King Solomon calls vanity, vanity. But we wear his name and we attach his name to meaninglessness. And the church in America and the church at Southbridge, and me, and you, are guilty of violating this commandment. Even if you never use it as a swear word, and you never go to a movie where they say it in such a way that you feel really uncomfortable. You see, there are multiple ways to misuse, or to attach to emptiness, the name of God. And God's very serious about it, because he's serious about the fame of his name. That's why he says to these people, don't ever misuse my name. And think about the people he's talking to. You go back to verse 2 in Exodus chapter 20, and he says, I'm the God who rescued you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And then you go back and you think about that wraps up in those two little phrases, all of what's happened in Exodus chapter 1 through 19. What's happened in Exodus chapter 1 through 19? They were in bondage for 400 years. The slave drivers are doing this. They're trying to kill their kids so that the, the population doesn't grow. And it's just a terrible situation. And then God comes, he speaks to Moses, says, I am. That's his name. He is. He is present. He is here. He's the Redeemer. It's all those, you can't contain him in a name. He says, I am is here, and I am ascending you, and I want you to release these people from bondage. I want you to free these people from bondage, but here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh's going to be resistant. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, <laughs> God, why did you do the frog thing and the, and the flies and the gnats and the darkness and all those plagues you read about? Couldn't you have just like put a shield around your people? They could have walked out yeah, like a parade, leaving, you know, hey, you guys can't touch us because we're with God, you know? But he does all these plagues and he does all this stuff. Why does he do that? Well, he tells Moses in the midst of the plagues, right before the plague of the hail. And look at what he says in Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. Oh no, let my people. Anyway, uh, so that they may worship me. 
or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. And here's why. So you may know that there is no one like me, that I'm one of a kind. That's why he's so exclusive. There's no one like me in all the earth, verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. If he wanted to be done with the Egyptians, he could have just wiped them off and the Israelites could have taken over that land. But he doesn't do that. He says, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And do you know what happens with the Israelites? There was no Fox News. There was no CNN at that time. But everywhere they go, people say, oh, you're the Israelites? And the God of the Israelites, he's the God who did something no other God's ever done. He rescued two million people from slavery. Think about how strong the people have to be to hold two million people in slavery. He rescued you from that and he parted the Red Sea. And then you keep reading throughout the Old Testament. You see over and over again as they come into contact with these other people, they're known as the people who God parted the Red Sea and let them leave the Egyptians because he's unique, because he's exclusive. And it's the spread of the fame of his name that he wants. And you know how he does it? It's through his people. And here these are his people that are called by his name. These are his people that he's rescued out of bondage and now set free. He's their redeemer. He's their rescuer. He's their father. He's their Lord. And he says, I am the Lord, your God, verse 2, verse 5, your God, verse there's 7 right here, the name of the Lord, your God. I'm a personal God. I'm your God, and you are my people. And do you know what happens when you become his people? You wear his name. And what happens in the Old Testament is they were his children. Now they were identified as his people. Now they would bear his name. And they were blessed by him with this freedom so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world they came into contact with. And you think about what happens with us in the New Testament. As believers in Jesus Christ, when we bow at the name of Jesus Christ, we bow our knee and call him Lord, what happens is we receive love. We receive grace. We receive mercy. We receive forgiveness. We're washed clean. But you know what? we receive a new identity. Now, we don't have a culture where we change our name when we receive a new identity. Now, you see it throughout Scripture. You see Abram becomes Abraham when God does something significant. You see Jacob wrestles with God. He becomes Israel. You see in the New Testament when this guy named Saul, who's uh, zealous for killing Christians, becomes a Christian, he gets renamed Paul. Now, most of us, we don't change our name when we become a Christian, but we become Christians. We bear the name of Christ. Don't you think it's significant that the very first act of obedience we're supposed to do as Christians is get baptized? And how do we get baptized? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We bear his name. And so how are we supposed to live? Well, the Apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, doesn't matter if you're a doctor, doesn't matter if you're retired, doesn't matter if you own a business, doesn't matter if you're unemployed, doesn't matter if you're a janitor, doesn't matter if you're the president, doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you teach. It doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do in word or deed on the name of Jesus Christ. And why would we do that? It's because we bear a new identity. We have a new identity when we become believers in Jesus Christ. Our old has passed away, new has come, and the New Testament uses multiple analogies. And we're old creation, a new creation is taking place. We take off the old clothes, we put on the new clothes, but we are what Peter calls a royal priesthood. Do you realize that? It doesn't matter what your occupation is, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you teach, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a realtor, whether you're a developer, whether you're unemployed. It doesn't matter. You're a priest. That doesn't mean you wear a collar. doesn't mean you stand up in front and talk. doesn't mean you distribute some bread and crackers, all that kind of doesn't mean any of that stuff. You know what a priest is? A priest is a bridge between God and man. 
bridge, it's a mediator between God and man. And each one of us as believers that place our faith in Jesus Christ, according to 1 Peter, we become priests, all of us. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And some of us, we've placed our faith in Jesus, we don't feel like we have a new identity. We might feel unwanted. Well, is it what you feel or is it what the scriptures say? Because the scriptures say, according to Ephesians chapter 1, you've been chosen. You might not feel forgiven, but John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that it's not because of what you've done, because of how faithful he is and how just he is that he has decided to put your sin on the cross with Jesus Christ as your substitution and that he'll cleanse you. You've been cleansed. And it doesn't matter if you feel guilty. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you confess your sins, he cleanses you of all. There's no exception clauses there. It's not but this sin except for that sin, all unrighteousness. You don't feel loved? It says that you're loved so much he gave his son for you. You don't feel forgiven? You, you don't feel like he takes your anxieties, your burdens? He says, cast them all on me because I care for you. See, all that stuff is true. And you might not feel it. You might feel lonely. Do you know what happens? You become adopted. John chapter 1, verse 12. You're given the right to be called a child of God. So you receive his name. That's why you get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why you do everything in his name. That's why you've been wrapped in this name of Christian where you bear the name of Christ. You're part of a family. You've got hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters. Let the family in. You feel lonely? Let the family in. Live out to one another's a scripture. See, you might think these things are true. You're believing a lie. Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. And don't live those lies. He tells us what our identity is. And so we're to live in that identity. Problem is, some of us are guilty of identity theft. And if you think about it, identity theft seems like a new crime. It's something that's happened since the Internet's taken place. But what happens with identity theft is someone takes your name or your ID number, or if you've got a Social Security card or whatever it is, your address. They, they take something that has some weight to it, some credibility to it in behalf of you, and they use it in a way you wouldn't use it. They misrepresent you for their own benefit. And you think about it, I was reading this week, different stories that take place of people that have their identity stolen. There was one guy, I never heard anything like this before, one guy actually applied for a job at a grocery store. Fills out all of his info, you know, the applications have all that you know, social number and all that sort of stuff on there. Fills it all out and, and leaves the grocery store. And he doesn't shop there very often, so he didn't think much of it. He went and got another job somewhere else, never heard from the grocery store. A few months later, he was shopping at that grocery store again. And he saw somebody working there that had his exact name on their name tag. He went to the customer service desk, said, no, that's the person. And they verified it all. He didn't think anything of it. Went to do his taxes. Fills his taxes out, sends them in. Then gets notified by the IRS, you're not claiming all of your income. Because you have a job at the grocery store. Somebody was actually living life in his name. Sticking him with the bill, but living life in his name. Uh, another person shared a story about how they went to apply for an apartment complex to get an apartment um, to be able to live in. And the leasing company already had somebody under their name and social security card living in a different place, a different location, in one of their buildings. It was an illegal, illegal alien that had bought this identity so they could live and misrepresent that identity by doing something else. And you think about what it is to use God's name in vain, to misuse God's name. It's when we attach it to something it was never meant to be attached to. It can be a, an empty life. It can be a life that's actually contrary to his life. And some of us, we need to repent because we've been attaching God's name to stuff it was never meant to be attached to. Things like crusades, and we kill people in his name. Really? Is that what he tells us to do? And that might be an extreme example, but you bring it down into the church and what we do. How many times have you heard somebody say, and God led me to... Did he really? Because God has a lot of things written down real directly in his word 
Is that written down in his word? Because if not, it seems like he said what he needs to say. I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't ever lead us, but sometimes you hear people say things like, and God led me, and it's something that actually contradicts what he's already written down. Like, God led me to quit my job, leave my boss high and dry. Huh. Interesting. Because when I read Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, whatever you do, work as if you're working for the Lord, not for men. I don't know. Yeah, but he's a pagan. That's fine. God led me to do it. Really? That's called false prophecy. Did you know that? When you're trying to further your agenda and you attach God's name to it, it's called false prophecy, and there's some real strict consequences for that in the Bible. Or I've heard people say things like, I'm going to leave my spouse. God's leading me to leave my spouse. And there's no adultery and there's no abandonment, like you see as exception clauses for Scripture. But they're just, they're just done. They're just done with that. And God's leading you to do that? It sure seems different than when it says that you're supposed to love your wife like Christ loves the church and why you're supposed to respect their husbands. And We've got to be careful with this stuff. He's got serious about this stuff. And there are multiple ways we misuse his name. You think God's leading you to do something? Say that then. I think God's leading me too. I believe, I seem to be led. If he hasn't directly spoken to you, he doesn't directly say in his word, be careful about how we use his name. It's not just about what gets said in a movie or using it as a swear word. And attach his name to emptiness. Attach his name to something it's not meant to be attached to. And so what does it look like to use his name? Because we go on and on about what it doesn't look like. What does it look like? I think Jesus tells us, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us how to pray. You want to know how to pray? Jesus is a great guy to ask. Jesus tells us how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, our personal Father. And I don't know what your Father was like here on earth, but he's a perfect heavenly Father. He gives good gifts to his children. He says this. Here's the first thing he tells you to do. Hallowed be your name. Hallow his name. What does it mean to hallow his name? To empty it of meaning? Is that to hollow, kind of hollow? No, that's not what it means. We don't use that word very often, but hallowed means this, is to make it sacred, to set it apart, to make it different. And think about that. God says, I am holy. You be holy as I am holy. That means to be set apart. And you see, you go back to these people in, in Exodus chapter 20. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the people he let out of those plagues. If you read the plagues, you'll find themes that go through the plagues. Pharaoh's hard heart is a theme. You know what another theme is? The distinction of his people. You see, when there's darkness across the land everywhere, they're living in light. See, I made you a distinct people. When there's going to be a plague of the flies, you know what? The flies aren't going to be all over you because I made a distinction between you and the people of Egypt. When the livestock are going to die, guess what? There's a distinction because none of the livestock die from the Israelites. Only the Egyptians' livestock dies. And probably the most popular one, when the firstborn child is going to die, here's what I want you to do as my people. Put blood over the top of your doorpost so that when the death angel comes over, he passes over your house and the firstborn will survive and I'll make a distinction between you and the people of Egypt. He makes them distinct because he's a different God. Remember, there's no one like me and I want this to be for the fame of my name and so I want my people to be different than all the other people. And what does it look like to do that though? Well, I think Jesus tells us in the next part of the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. How does the kingdom come? Well, the king came, Jesus. And that was the first coming. And then when the king ascended, he allowed the Holy Spirit to come live within us. And so the king lives within us. The king comes through us. He says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So his will is supposed to be done. His desires are supposed to be accomplished the same as they're being accomplished in heaven. What's happening in heaven? Forever and ever and ever the angels are singing, holy, 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 set apart, distinct, unique is the Lord, his name, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
The fame of his name is being spread forever and ever and ever. And how does that happen on earth? Well, I'm going to guess, I'm going on a limb here, that God's greatest desire is probably going to be what Jesus calls his greatest commandment. And his greatest commandment is this, love me, love people. Interesting, because that summarizes the first four commandments are about loving God. The next six commandments are about loving people. And so I think that God's desire, his will, his longing for our lives is that we would love him and that we would love others. See, the scriptures don't say that they'll know that you bear my name, that they'll know that you are Christians because you vote the right way. They don't say you'll know that you're Christians because you're anti-gay. They'll know you're Christians because you say one thing and you do something else. They'll know you're Christians because you stand in judgment on people who live different than you, and we always tend to judge based on what we're really strong at doing, and so he doesn't say that. This is in John chapter 13. It says they'll know you're Christians because you love one another. And so what does that look like? Well, you think about it, there's people that do that all the time too. Sometimes they don't get the press. Uh, I think about different folks that go to our church. Janet, one lady that goes to our church. Uh, she's a priest. She is a nurse that works in a hospital, represents God to the patients she has. She serves in a ministry that's one of our strategic partner ministries called Hope Reigns. If you don't know what Hope Reigns is, uh, it's a great ministry where they bring children in and they use horses to try and teach them life lessons and to connect them to Jesus Christ for life change. And a lot of times these children, they come from difficult situations. Parents are getting a divorce. Um, sometimes they're foster children. And the parents don't even know what the foster parents don't even know what all the story is. Uh, sometimes they've got uh, terminal illnesses, lots of different things. You know what Janet's ministry is there? She's a listener. <laughs> when I heard that, I, I just thought to myself, how much could we change our reputation if we would just listen? And her role is not to listen to the children. She's actually there, strategically there, to listen to the parents and the guardians when they come. Now, remember what the kids are going through. You don't think that's heavy on the parents? The parents are the ones getting divorced. Or that are foster parents that are having a hard time figuring out how to connect with this child. Or that are just found out that their child has a terminal illness. She's there not to talk to them, but to listen to them. And if you listen to her share about her ministry, she says, I just use my God-given ears and my heart. And she said, it's amazing how many times somebody comes in and they're going through something that she's been through. Isn't it great how God does that? And they'll pray together. And you know what will happen? Sometimes it's simple prayers. Like she talks about one little girl that came that was adoptive, and, and she just needed a, a friend. The next week she brought a friend to Hope Reigns with her. And they prayed for a friend for this little girl. And sometimes they'll be praying. There'll be a really heavy situation. She says sometimes we'll be in the midst of the prayer, and you'll feel the heaviness lift. You know what she's doing? Janet loves God, and so she's loving people. Because if you love God, you will love people, John tells us. And she's spreading the fame of his name. You see it in our community groups. I've shared with you before. It's the primary place where we care for one another, primary place where we do Bible study, do those types of things. If some, you know, a single mom calls up to the office and says she needs some money for something, we can write her a check and take care of that. Or we can hand it off to our community groups. Our community groups can not only take care of the financial situation, but then start a relationship with her. And we've had groups do this. And they start to get to the point where they even celebrate holidays together. And they, spend a time, they become a family. And they show her the love of Christ in a tangible way because they're spreading the fame of his name. Because they love God, they love people. Our Celebrate Recovery Group meets on Thursday nights, 7 o'clock. Great ministry. They're trying to create a safe environment where you can come. It doesn't matter what your stuff is. It doesn't matter if you're codependent, you need a people pleaser, you're a workaholic, a drug addict, porn addict. It doesn't matter what your thing is. You go in that environment, they're not going to be surprised by anything you say. Because they've either been through it or they've heard about it. And it's not just a place where you can come, you can dump and be like, man, I'm messed up. Let me tell you how messed up I am. No. 
It's ultimately that they want to connect you to Jesus Christ for life change because Jesus has changed their life and now they're walking in freedom. They've been rescued out of the land of slavery and rescued out of the bondage and they've got a redeemer and a rescuer that they want you to know. So what they're doing is they're spreading the fame of his name because they love God, they're loving people. There's one guy that shared a story with me. We do this thing called Southbridge Serves uh, every once in a while and uh, we'll go out, we try to give tangible expressions as a church to our community that we don't just exist to gather people together here on the, on the church on Sunday, but we exist to reach them. We exist to touch them. We exist to demonstrate to them the love of God. And so we'll go to the schools and we'll go to the senior citizens' home, fire department, all that stuff. And one guy shared with me, he went with a group of folks from our church out to Laurel Park. And they're just handing out bottles of water and Gatorade and just being there. If anybody wanted to talk, they'd talk with them. This one woman started talking to him with her two little daughters and ended up sharing that she had a husband who was at home who had a debilitating disease. And the guy, just in his sensitivity, said, has anyone been over there to pray with him? She said, no. 30 minutes later, the whole group of people from Southbridge are in this guy's bedroom. They're in there praying with him, reading scripture over him, and praying over his family. Do you know why? They love God. They love people. They're spreading the fame of his name. That's how you use his name. Because you wear his name. You wear his identity. You call yourself a Christian, then you should therefore live as Christ lives. And when we do things contrary to or even empty of his characteristics and his name, we're misusing his name because we're attaching it to something empty. What we're supposed to be doing is being for the fame of his name, for his glory. That's how we were created in the image of God. He created a male and female. He created you. And if you've been bought at a price, you've been redeemed because you've placed your sins on the cross of Jesus as your substitute. Then you spread the fame of his name because you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. You're his child. You've been chosen. You've been redeemed. You have a new identity and live in that identity for the fame of his name. And when you don't, he tells us in this passage, he takes it really serious. In fact, this commandment's a little different than some of the other commandments. See, God takes it very serious when people bring shame to his name. That's our second point. God takes it very serious when we misuse or we bring shame to his name. Look at that verse again. You shall not, you will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He's not talking to everybody. He's talking to his people. This is a personal, the people that he's the father of. The name of the Lord your God. For, here's why, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. <laughs> the guy showed me after the first service his notes on his little phone from this message. You know what he wrote after this? Uh-oh. Yeah, no kidding. We're in trouble. Because let me tell you something. We do this all the time as a church in America, as Southbridge, as Scott, as you as an individual. We've all done this. Do you realize how encompassing this is? If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, you've done this. And I told, I said the first service, I said, hopefully I don't do this. But I will, sometimes I say one thing and I do something else. It's called hypocrisy. 85% of people outside the church think that we're all hypocrites. And they're right. Because we don't do this stuff right all the time. And so I'll say to you, love people. And hopefully I don't do it today, but I might go out in the lobby and be like, man, you're bugging me. You know, leave me alone. Be like a jerk to somebody or to cut somebody off on the way I got to hurry up and get lunch. You know, whatever I'm doing to get home. Got DVR. I don't know if I'm trying to get to the game, whatever. But it, it just, I'm a jerk sometimes. And I tell people to love people. And so what do you do? Oh, God's a God of second chances. Sweep it under the rug. No big deal. It's not really, I mean, we all do it, so we can't all be held guilty, right? The verse says, the Lord, not what we think, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, it's pretty broad in that he's not saying exactly what he'll do, but he's serious about it. And you read the scriptures. I read a story in Leviticus chapter 24 this week, a challenge you can read it on your own. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 11 through 16, these two dudes get in a fight. I don't know if they start duking it out or if they're just arguing, but it gets intense. One guy curses, it just says in the passage, the name. 
And they're not used to hearing that. Like going to the movies and just kind of that's what happens. So, huh? Everybody's shocked. They don't know what to do, so they go to Moses. Moses is their leader. Moses doesn't want to act rashly. So Moses says, you know, just detain the guy. And when God makes it clear to us his will, then we'll, we'll do what God says. And Leviticus chapter 24 says that God spoke to Moses. And you know what God told Moses? Kill that dude. He said, you take him outside the camp. I don't want this happening inside the camp. You take him outside the camp. You lay hands on his head so everybody knows who the guilty guy is. And then you stone him. What? I mean, I thought he's a God of grace. Is that how he functioned in the Old Testament? No, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been a God of grace. I've been saved by grace through faith. But he takes sin seriously. And there's guilt for sin. And he says, for this sin... He will not hold anyone without guilt. No one will be held guiltless. Everyone will be held guilty. You say, well, yeah, but in the New Testament, he doesn't do that. Really? Ananias and Sapphira, why don't you read that story? Look it up. Yeah, but he doesn't do that now. I mean, back in the Bible, he did that stuff. I was just talking to my wife this morning about a pastor who shared a story with us one time. He's an older pastor. His name's Crawford the Ritz. He pastors in Atlanta. He's telling us about a guy he was sitting at a diner with, and he's talking to him. The guy was running around on his wife, and he said he was sitting there with the guy. The guy claimed to be a Christian. And he starts pleading with them, you know, stop doing this. And finally he just goes, prophet, says, stop it. Like, you know this is wrong, cut it out. And the guy decided he was going to go do his own thing. Short time later, he gets in an accident on his motorcycle. The accident's so bad they can't identify his body. You know how they identify him? His wedding ring. I don't think that's coincidence. I mean, we don't have it written down in a book that he did this and then God did this, but... Seems like, I mean, if you just know enough people, you know enough people that bear the name of Christ, if you've seen people that go out and they try to, on their own, just kind of, I'm going to do my thing, and God takes that seriously. But at the same time, then you read the New Testament and you see guys like Peter. Remember Peter? Remember he's with Jesus? And he's the most committed. He's the spokesperson for the disciples, and, and Jesus says, you're going to deny me. He says, no way, I will never do that. If everybody else takes it off before the day ends, you're going to deny me. He said, no, they can all do that, but I'll go to you to the death. And later on, He's going into this place, and this little girl comes walking up to him. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? And Jesus is getting beaten right now. They're getting ready to crucify him. And he's, I, I don't even know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. He goes over to a fire to warm himself up. Another girl comes up to him. You know, big, tough Peter here, right? Hey, weren't you? you got a Galilean accent. You with that guy from Nazareth? No, I don't even know who you're talking about. Third time, reading the Gospel of Mark. He gets confronted with whether he knows Jesus. You know what he does? He says, I swear under oath. And he calls down curses on his name, on himself. Calls down curses from heaven. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. But Peter was a fisherman. Okay, I'm not going to repeat for you what I think maybe he said. But he calls down curses from heaven. And denies Jesus. Under oath, he lies. Says he never even knew Jesus. And he's swearing and asking curses from heaven. But Peter ends up being this guy that God uses in such a mighty way. But so you go to John chapter 21, and what happens in John chapter 21 is the resurrected Christ says to Jesus, or says to Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Feed my sheep. Yes, him again, do you, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? It must have hurt to hear it a third time, don't you think? He says, yeah, I do. You know I love you. He says, then go feed my sheep. Now, did he just brush it under the rug with Peter? Just kind of, everybody does it. Kind of, you get away with it, they didn't get away with it. Kind of arbitrary, who knows what happens. No, it says here he'll hold no one guiltless. Let me tell you something, there's always punishment. Not just for this sin, but for every sin. Doesn't matter how big it is, doesn't matter how small it is. He holds guilt for everyone. You're guilty. 
If you've done it, you're guilty. The question is, do you pay for the punishment or did Jesus Christ pay for it on the cross? Because he's our substitutionary atonement. That means he's paid for our sin. But you have to come to the cross, bow your knee at the name of Jesus Christ and call him Lord, confess your sins to him and he is faithful and he is just and he will cleanse you. See, Peter knew restoration. Peter knew reconciliation. Peter knew what it was to have Jesus Christ take the guilt of his sin. And then Peter's the one who stands up before thousands of people and proclaims the name of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. And do you know what happens? 3,000 people in one day come to know Jesus Christ and they get baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they begin to live their lives and it didn't matter what they did. It didn't matter if they were a carpenter, if they were a mason, if they were a property developer, if they were an ex-Pharisee. It didn't matter what they did, whatever they did, in word and deed. They did it in the name of Jesus Christ. And you know how the revolution of the church began? Because it was a revolution of the heart and they loved so well. And that's why you and I know of Jesus Christ is because of what they did. And so the question becomes for us, are you guilty of this sin? Yes. But do you pay for that guilt? Or do you let Jesus Christ pay for that guilt? Do you receive forgiveness? Do you receive a new identity? Do you receive love? Do you know what it is for him to be your father? Or is it just a name? And if he's received your guilt, he's paid for your shame, he's paid for your condemnation. Now, there's no condemnation for you, and you live for him. You've been bought at a price, and so you live for the sake of spreading the fame of his name. That's why you exist. Or you can live an empty life and try to attach his name to it, which is just another cycle of going back to what it was like before. What are you for? Let's pray. Father God, come before you this morning on behalf of all my friends, brothers and sisters, people that are outside of the church, people that are inside the church, and God, if there are any that don't know you, I pray today they would bow their knee to the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names, the name that has the power to save, the name of a redeemer and a rescuer and a forgiver, and I pray they would receive that freedom, they would receive that forgiveness, and they would call upon you right now, online or here, theater 14 or theater 9, that in their seat they would just pray to you and say, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to know your son Jesus is my Savior. And Father, I pray for those of us who claim the name of your son Jesus Christ. I pray like Aaron the high priest and pray over us. God, I pray that you bless us and keep us. Let your face shine upon us. Give us your peace and that we may go as people in your name to spread the fame of your name for your glory. And God, every time we blow it and every time we're hypocritical, I pray that we would even show it before those that watch that it's because of your grace and your redemption that we can continue to walk with you. Father, we love you. We need you. Please empower us by the power of your spirit to no longer attach your name to things that it was not meant to be attached to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.